and there is a spirit of discernment that I believe that we need if out of all the gifts of the spirit if you were to covet one in these days in which we live it's that spirit of discernment Lord make me quick to smell something is not quite right here I don't know what it is but Lord I'm not going to believe that quickly and go back to the word of God and say does it align itself with the word of God the word of God is under attack and this is no real surprise it's always been this way Many godly men went so far as to spill their own blood so that we could hear God's word for ourselves. But the attack against the word of God in modern times is far more subtle and insidious. The opponents of God's word aren't burning Bibles here in America, but they are discrediting it, obstructing it, minimizing it, and perverting it. And this is leaving millions of people wide open to every kind of deception. In this episode, Pastor David Ravenhill exhorts us to develop a deeper relationship with the Word of God so that we will be able to discern what is true and what is dangerous to our souls. That's what's coming up on Purity for Life. Before we get into our show today, I wanted to give you a couple of exciting updates on Purity for Life. First, as many of you know, a couple of months ago, our former host, Jim Lewis, moved on with our blessing, and I've been filling in until we could find a more permanent solution. Recently, our prayers were answered in a bit of an interesting way. Patrick Hudson has been with us for about a year and a half, and he has an aptitude for working with sound, and he expressed a real interest in coming up with interviews, doing post-production, managing the back end, and all of the administrative madness. So, we decided that he would do that, and I would become the host of Purity for Life. We're looking forward to producing new shows with all new content in the very near future, and we're trusting that this is going to work out really well. Secondly, we were recently contacted by a man named Joe Jackowitz, the founder of First Love Radio, and interesting side note, Pastor Steve was interviewed on his radio show a number of times back when Pure Life Ministries was starting back in the 80s. Anyway, Joe just contacted us because he wants Purity for Life to become part of the regular programming on First Love Radio. So we've been working really hard to get that up to speed, and we should be up and running real soon. First Love Radio sends biblical teaching all across the world, and we're really grateful to be a part of their new lineup. So if you're interested, check them out at firstloveradio.org. Well, because of all this work to get Patrick trained and First Love Radio up to speed, we haven't had the time to put together the typical Purity for Life shows. So, for the next three weeks, we're going to offer you messages that were given at some of our previous annual conferences. Each of these messages are really timely, so you're not going to be missing out at all. And, speaking of our conference, stay tuned after the show for a special announcement. All right, let's get into Purity for Life. It was uh, January, I think, of this year that uh, Sean sent me an email giving me the uh, theme for this uh, particular season together these uh, next two days. Again, are you holding fast to the Word of God in the face of mounting opposition? I don't know who came up with that title, how many days of prayer and fasting it took, but uh, wow, what a mouthful, you know, it's... it's it's like one of those old, you know, the old titles of books. You go back about 60 years ago and, the, you, you know, it wasn't just, uh, you know, for God's sake, grow up like one of my titles. It was like, you know, it would go on and on and on, sort of fill the whole cover. You know, this is one of those, uh, one of those titles. I was um, very tempted to uh, call uh, Sean. In fact, I almost picked up the phone and uh, called him to ask him what he meant by the Word of God. Uh, let me ask you what your understanding is of the Word of God. How many of you immediately, when you heard that, thought of the Bible? Okay, me too. That was my initial response, you know, holding fast to the Word of God in the face of mounting opposition. And um, then I started to think about it, and I thought, well, I wonder what uh, 
Steve or uh, Jeff, whoever it was, or both of them uh, were thinking what was in their mind when they came up with this particular theme, holding fast to the Word of God in the face of uh, mounting opposition, because obviously the Word of God is under attack these days like never before. I think my father used to say that the um, Bible has suffered more from its exponents than its opponents. And that's getting true. You know, the, uh, the world outside has never endorsed the Word of God as being God's Word. They've uh, criticized it and ridiculed it and, uh, you know, done everything they can to burn and ban it and so on. But it's the exponents of the Word of God that have done more damage. Those that have taken a hold of a truth and perverted it or twisted it and, you know, made it into something entirely different than what God intended. And, uh, and so the Bible is under attack, even our president, and uh, that was on, I think, the first uh, clip there this morning about changing his stand on, uh, you know, gay marriage and so on, and uh, he made the statement, and I've got it written down somewhere, that uh, this, he said, I don't see any conflict between this and my Christian beliefs. You know, well, it was uh, news to me that he had any Christian beliefs, but uh, <laughs> after that, you know, I thought, well, you know... Uh, it didn't seem to bother him in the slightest. And then I found out, of course, that uh, he consulted his two daughters before he made that statement. And so now we know why the nation is in such a mess. You know, you've got a couple of teenagers running the show. Um, you know, he's in a core of uh, people that are teaching about economics and so on, you know. Uh, it's, uh, it's a crazy world, but uh, we are under attack. The Word of God is certainly under attack today like uh, never before. And so... Um, you know, again, I went back to this uh, particular title, and I was trying to think about it and uh, muse on it a little bit, holding fast to the Word of God. What exactly does that mean? Well, um, let me have you turn in your Bible to the uh, book of John, and the uh, first chapter, John chapter 1, and let's read uh, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, let me uh, substitute the word Bible uh, for the word because we have a tendency uh, to interchange words, don't we? I could have said to you, in fact, I was tempted to say to you right at the beginning, would you open up uh, the word of God to the book of John? And I'm sure most of you would have picked up your Bible if you have it and you would have opened uh, to the, uh, the book of John. And so we, uh, we use the word of God as referring to uh, the Bible. And yet there is a difference, isn't there? And uh, I still don't know, so I'm going to leave it in limbo here, what uh, was in the mind of these uh, two guys, or whichever one uh, came up with it, holding fast to the Word of God. But, but we do, we, we get sort of sloppy in our definitions. If I said to you, um, is there a difference between a black spiritual and a spiritual black? Well, obviously there is. One is a song and one is a saint. I'm being politically correct now. We used to call them Negro spirituals or a black Negro. But you understand what I'm saying. There's a different one is, uh, you know, a piece of paper with some prose on it. The other is a person. And uh, likewise, the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Bible. And the Bible was with God and the Bible was God. True or false? False. Good. You see, one of the reasons I come is to try and straighten out all this bad theology here, you know. Oh, I mean, it's a major effort, you know. It's... Okay, so you can see then there is a difference between the Word of God and the Bible or God's Word. So uh, I'm going to just uh, look at some scriptures because uh, so often we don't think along these particular lines, and I'm going to slow down a little bit here because I, I want to make sure that Steve and Jeff get this. Uh, you know, I don't... I don't want uh, Kathy and Rose having to explain it to them later. And um, the Word of God is a person. The Word of God is a person. God's Word is a bunch of pages with a leather cover on it, right? So uh, Revelation 19 and verse 13, and he is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Holding fast to the Word of God in the face of mounting opposition. Holding fast to a piece of paper, and I will get back to that. I'm not trying to diminish that in any way, but holding fast to a relationship with the living God. John 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld 
His glory. The word is a person referring to, obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we would go back into eternity past, you cannot say there was the Father, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible and the Son are not interchangeable in that sense. We can't say God's Word and the Word of God can be sort of switched around. They are two totally separate things, and we need to make sure we understand that. It doesn't make sense, again, to say in the beginning was the Bible. So um, we can see, again, from these uh, portions of Scripture that uh, one is a person, the other is uh, God's Word. Let's uh, look at uh, God's Word here for a moment, John 3 and verse 34. For he whom God sent speaks the words of God. Obviously, he whom God sent is the Son of God, but he speaks the words of God. So there is a difference between the words that he speaks and who he is as a person. John 17 and verse 8, For the words that thou gavest me I have given to them. This is God's word. It isn't the word of God. Revelation 17 and verse 17, For God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. Revelation 22 and verse 9, And He said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren of the prophets of those who heed the words of this book. And then Mark 4 and verse 14 It talks about the soul went forth and he sowed what? The word. So there is a difference between the sower and the word. The sower, of course, was the son of man. The sower was the Lord Jesus Christ in that parable, but he was sowing the word of God. So we have to make a distinction between those two. Now, while we treasure the word of God, and we should treasure the word of God, and I in no way intend to diminish the importance of God's word, at the same time, we do not worship the Word of God. We worship an individual. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees basically worship the Word of God. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but you will not come to me, making a distinction between the Scriptures and Himself. You will not come to me that you may have life. You know, they prided themselves in their knowledge of the Word of God. They had their phylacteries, these little leather pouches full of uh, Scriptures they'd memorized, and, you know, they were dangling down again like a fly fisherman with all these corks, you know, sitting there. And, you know, they prided themselves. The more you had, you know, the more religious you were, the more spiritual you were, and, and so on. And they memorized vast portions of the Word of God. Nothing wrong with that, but it never brought them to the living Word of God. Never brought them to God Himself. Now, let's uh, look at the main reasons that we have the Word of God. Jesus is addressing the Jews here, and it's the verse I just quoted, John 5 and verse 39, you search the Scriptures, or if, if you like, you search God's Word, because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. In other words, this book will bear witness, will bear testimony to God Himself. Hebrews 10 and verse 7, He said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. In other words, this Bible, these scriptures reveal the nature of God, the character of God, the plan of salvation. They are a light to our feet, a lamp unto our path, they're a, a road map, everything that pertains to life and godliness. All of those things are contained in the Word of God. And God will never violate His Word. He, he, he will not tell you to do something that is in contradiction to the Word of God. The Word of God, again, is, uh, is vital. It's absolutely essential. But at the same time, we have to make a distinction between a piece of paper and a person, between the, the ritual, if you like, of, uh, and the discipline of reading the Word of God and a relationship with God Himself. And uh, so, they, um, again, just uh, setting this straight here, Revelation 1 and verse 2, it says, He bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is a testimony. It reveals, it manifests the the Son of God uh, to us. John 5 and verse 46, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. In other words, this entire Bible is about, ultimately, God Himself. The nature, the character of God. 
and we cannot understand God apart from the Word of God. Well, we can to a certain measure. The heavens declare the glory of God, but in, in real detail, we have it explained to us throughout the, uh, the Scriptures. And so, again, the Scriptures contain everything that uh, pertains to life and godliness. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, you're familiar with these Scriptures. I know all Scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. God and His, uh, and His sovereignty saw fit to put every word into this book. These stories are not there to make it harder for you to read or understand and so on. It is God-inspired, given to man. Man wrote it, but God gave, if you like, the, the dictation, so to speak, the, the revelation, the insight. It was God-breathed. And so all Scripture, there are those now that are saying, in fact, I was just out in, uh, a few days ago out in uh, North Carolina, the, the fire school with uh, Dr. Michael Brown and some of the guys out there, and we were talking about all the different uh, errors, if you like, that are coming into the church, and they were telling me now there's, uh, there's a, a segment in the body of Christ that said anything before the red letters, you know, if you have a red letter edition, meaning the words of Jesus, including the words of Jesus, all of that no longer is applicable to the Christian life because that is all under the old covenant. And we are no longer bound by that. We no longer have to obey that and so on. And so basically, you know, the, your Bible begins in the book of Acts. That's, uh, you know, that's one of the things that they're teaching now. And, uh, and yet this verse says all Scripture. And remember when this was written, there was no New Testament. So it's talking about the old covenant. And it says, everything that was written, again, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So don't listen to those that say, listen, this has no effect upon your life. You don't need to read it. You can get rid, basically, of the Old Testament and uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can get rid of that. It's uh, no longer applicable to your everyday life. And yet my Bible, again, contradicts that, all Scripture. So the Word of God, again, is a person. And we need to understand that uh, Jesus quoted, I think, from just about every, uh, almost every, at least every book in the Bible apart from the book of Esther is quoted in the New Testament. Jesus quoted, uh, I think, 179, 180 times from the Old Testament. And after all, uh, he should know what he was talking about. You know, he referred to creation, to the flood, he referred to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and so on, to Solomon, to all of these other uh, people over and over and over again. Uh, Jesus went back into the Old Testament. And so it's important that we study, again, God's Word. But let me take you to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 uh, for a moment. And verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice what our calling is. It is into fellowship, into a relationship, into an intimacy with Jesus Christ. And while I am a firm believer and always have been, my father drummed into me from uh, being a little boy, not that he was specifically addressing me, but he would quote again Paul's admonition to Timothy, preach the word, preach the word, preach the word, preach the word. And somehow that, you know, registered in my young mind that that is the most important thing, preaching the word of God. And I preach the word of God. But we also need to see that ultimately it is about a relationship. There is a difference between, again, God's word and the word of God. You can go and get one of my books at the table there, and it has got my word in it. But you can't have a relationship with that book. It won't do you any good, you know. It can't talk back to you and so on and so forth. You know, it's got my word in it, but it is not me. And I believe in these days that the thing that will keep us is not just having knowledge, but it is walking again in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to have, and Steve emphasized it over and over, that devotional life. And your devotional life is to be more than just reading the Word of God. As the old hymn says, beyond the sacred page, we seek Thee, Lord, our spirits pant for Thee, what? The living Word. In other words, it is something beyond the written Word. The Pharisees love the written Word, but they, you know, Jesus said, your heart is far from me. 
And so it's having that relationship with God. I want to, uh, and I, I jotted this down, I did not have this prepared, but I want to veer off a little bit uh, because as uh, Steve was sharing, I did feel that there was uh, a certain uh, revelation at least that was uh, coming in uh, Matthew 24. These are signs, of course, the disciples came to Jesus and said, what are some of the signs of your coming? And, you know, I believe that uh, like never before, we're seeing a, a rapid escalation of events that are going to culminate uh, again in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we have listed here in response to that question, what are some of the signs of your return, basically? And Jesus uh, listed one here that I want to uh, draw your attention to in verse 12. And because of lawlessness, or because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Or the King James says, and the love of many will wax cold. You know, my wife loves candles. I may have said that before. You know, when you blow out that candle, that liquid, it takes a while to solidify. You can put your finger in and it's, uh, well, initially, you know, it's blistering hot, but, uh, you know, uh, two or three minutes later, it can still be soft and pliable and so on. And finally, it hardens. The love of many will wax cold. It is a gradual process. It's incremental. It may not happen in one day or two days or three days, but over a period of time, you find yourself becoming colder and colder in your response and desire for the things of God. And it doesn't say the love of a few. It says the love of many will uh, wax cold. Revelation chapter 2, you have the Spirit of God here, or Jesus addressing the churches, the seven churches, the very first one that he deals with is the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, and he has a lot of good things to say. He says, I, I know your deeds and your toil, the perseverance that you cannot endure evil men. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles, they are not, and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and you have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. Now, those are pretty positive things. This was a church that was squeaky clean evangelically. I mean, you know, not every person got up and said, I'm an apostle. They had some sort of a test that they would uh, give them before they allowed them in the pulpit. We test those that say they're apostles, you know, and so uh, there's no Jezebel operating in the church. There's no Balaam spirit that you've got in some of the other churches. I mean, this church is a pretty good church. I know your zeal. I know your toil. I know your perseverance, you know, um, and so on. But then he says in verse 4, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. You've left your first love. Now, not lost. There is a difference between leaving something and losing something. One is accidental, one is volitional. In other words, one is an act of your will, one is an accident. You know, I've used this illustration before, but uh, if you were to go to the mall at Christmas time and you've got a little three-year-old in tow and maybe you get uh, caught up looking at something in a shop window there that catches your attention and after a moment you turn around and your little one is no longer there. All of a sudden you panic. Why? Because you've lost your daughter or lost your, your son. And you immediately, you know, look around and call his or her name. And if that, that doesn't work, then you go to the, the store and ask them if they'll make an announcement to say there's a little, you know, boy running around with, uh, you know, blue pants on and red hair or whatever. And if you see him, please bring him to the nearest uh, customer service rep or whatever. Now, on the other hand, if you go to the mall at Christmas time with your three-year-old to purposely leave him at the mall. And those who've got three-year-olds have that urge every once in a while. But, uh, you know, but you take that little one and you, I've left him at the mall, you can be arrested. Isn't that right? If they find out that your intention was you went to the mall to leave that little one, you didn't lose him, you left him. That is the word that is used here, you have left your first love. There was a deliberate walking away from that relationship. And again, maybe it's not quite that deliberate, but over a period of time, those things begin to take place, don't they? Paul writing to Timothy, one of the warnings of the last days, he says, men will be lovers of money or lovers of self first, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. More than. In other words, there'll be a gradual increase of affection for money. It doesn't say they don't have a love for God. It just says the love of these things will surpass their love of God. 
And we have got to constantly guard, again, this relationship, holding fast to the Word of God. It is a relationship. We need to spend time with Him. As the song says, He walks with me and He talks with me. You know, it's that daily companionship with the living God, the privilege that we have to come into the courts of the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and to deepen that fellowship, deepen that relationship. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock to another church. I want to come in. I want to have fellowship with you. I want to have that intimacy, that time with you. And yet, uh, you know, they said, no, we're not interested, basically. Why? Because they become lukewarm. Again, the love of many had begun to wax cold, and we've got to guard that relationship. Paul, writing, I think, to Timothy again, he says, with great sorrow, Demas has forsaken me, what? Having loved this present world. Demas, part of Paul's apostolic team. Here was a young man that, uh, you know, joined himself to Paul. They traveled around establishing uh, churches and so on, and yet the love of the world got a hold of him. You know, he, he doesn't say anything worse than that. That doesn't sound like a bad thing. He doesn't say, you know, he went off into, you know, some uh, major sin of some sort. No, he just said that the love of the world was greater than the love of God. And we have that, this constant temptation, don't we? We live in a media age. Every time you turn on your computer or television or whatever, it screams at you. You know, you need this and you need that. You know, if you don't have granite countertops, forget it. You know, if you don't have Armstrong tires on your, you know, forget it. If you don't have this sort of carpeting, forget it. You know, if you don't wear these sort of jeans, forget it. If you don't drive this sort of car, you're not with it, you know. And, and everything tells us, you know, in order to maintain my image, I've got to have, have, have all of these things. And the, the love of the world. And so it's this love relationship that we have got to uh, maintain at all costs. And um, I uh, think back, and I may have shared this over the years, I can't remember anymore, I go somewhere almost every uh, single week, but uh, my wife and I met in Bible school, and it was a little tiny school up in Minneapolis, uh, just uh, 25 students in our class. And uh, we, we were together for every single class. We didn't sort of break off, and some went to study Hebrew, and others had an, another elective. We, we just all tracked together. But the first year, you were not allowed to date. There was absolutely no dating allowed. And the second year, you were allowed to uh, date, but uh, you could only leave campus, and we were a good ways out of Minneapolis at the time. It's all grown up since then, but it was out in the country. And you could uh, only leave the campus once a month, and you had a day off, and you could go away for that day. Now, when you dated somebody, you had to go to the dean of men's office, at least I did, and they had a book there, and you would write down your name in the book, and you would write down the name of the girl you were taking out, and then it was on an honor system, you had to write down what time you got back in the evening, and it was 10.30, was curfew. And if you were late by, you know, two or three minutes, you had to be honest and say 10.35 or whatever. And if you were late consistently, you got so many demerits and you could be kicked out of school. I don't recall anybody having to leave, but that was the rule. Not only that, but they had a, a book for the girls. And the girls had to write who they were going out with and what time they got back. So I guess they could compare them in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So, you know, if I put, I, we got in early and she put, we got in late, then, you know, somebody was lying. But, uh, you know, we, we sort of chafed at that. That was a law. That was legalistic to us. I mean, after all, 10.30 at night, you know, these days kids are just leaving the house at that hour. You know, and we were 19, 20 years of age, and uh, 10.30, I mean, come on, we're, in a, we're on a date, you know. And then one day, we, uh, another, we used to double date a lot, and another couple of myself, we, we had a revelation, and I still think it was a revelation. And the revelation was this, since we have a day off, the day begins at midnight. <laughs> Revelation. You know, the light went on, you know. And so uh, my buddy and I, we uh, decided that we would start our date about 5.30 in the morning. And uh, Saturday morning, you know, most people were not stirring on campus, and we would rendezvous with our girlfriends and uh, get in a car and drive up, you know, somewhere up in northern Minnesota, Gooseberry Falls. Any Minnesotans here? Okay, they know. And, uh, you know, go up there, maybe get uh, breakfast somewhere on the way. And uh, by the time 10.30 came around, that was a pretty good date. You know, in anybody's uh, book, it wasn't that hard to uh, get back at 10.30 after starting at 5.30 in the morning. And uh, so that's, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was our revelation. Now, the problem was the school had another rule, and that rule was that before breakfast, you had to have your devotional time. 
and they had monitors in the uh, boys' dorm and the girls' dorm to make sure you were out of bed and that there was quiet from uh, whatever time it was, 7 to 8 o'clock in the morning, and that was the time you were supposed to be in your room and uh, you've already showered and cleaned up and ready for school, but you were just spending time alone with God. Well, I did not have to abide by those rules because I lived in the staff quarters, even though my father was not officially on staff. In fact, he wasn't on staff, but we, we had special privilege of uh, living in the staff quarters. And so I did not have anybody monitoring me, and I could get up any time I wanted to. And uh, I, I found it very, very difficult to get up at the required time. I mean, after all, this is Minnesota. You know, the middle of winter there, where 30, 40 degrees at that time was not uncommon. And, uh, you know, just a miserable place, especially in the winter. And, uh, but I never missed breakfast. You know, I was always down there, possibly ahead of everybody else, and uh, having breakfast. Now, I tell people the difference between my relationship with my girlfriend and my relationship with God was totally different. One was a legal relationship, and one was a love relationship. Let me say that again. One was a legal relationship. Do I have to? I don't want to. I don't want to get up. This Bible, this book isn't that interesting sort of thing, and I don't want to pray, and I don't want to, you know, and do I have to do all that stuff anyway? Now, if my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, if she'd have suggested, listen, why don't we start at 3.30 in the morning? Believe me, I could have got out of bed, no problem. <laughs> no problem. I could be up, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready to go, you know. It was no problem. I was in love, and you know, when you're in love, hey, you'll do anything. Isn't that right? And I think what has happened in the house of God is that we have lost our love relationship. After all, it's the first commandment, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with everything. Your mind, your soul, your strength, I mean everything that you have. Love the Lord your God. First and foremost, the greatest commandment of all. And when we lose that first love, then we begin to wax cold. And then, once that happens, then you do get into legalism. Again, I tell people that uh, back in the day, we'll be married 50 years next year, and um, that's long before the days of the computer. And when I would go on vacation, my girlfriend at the time would write me a letter. And my mother sometimes would come in and say, here's a letter from Nancy, and I don't ever recall asking her, do I have to read it? Never once. I would grab that thing, take off somewhere, you know, read it inside out, upside down, add words, subtract words, you know, muse on it, meditate on it. I mean, man, it was from my girlfriend to me, and it was exciting, you know. I wish it had been a little longer, you know, but uh, anyway. And yet that's exactly what we do. Do I have to read the Word of God? Do I have to pray? That is a sign right there that you have lost your first love. It's a sign. And it is a sign that you are operating in a legal relationship with God instead of a love relationship. And we have to turn that around, don't we? We have to get back. You've left your first love. And the wonderful thing is that you guys have a, a golden opportunity that a lot, a lot of people don't because it says that he that is forgiven much has the capacity to want love much. That is the redemptive thing about sin. Those that go deepest have a capacity to love more than those that have only been forgiven a little. Jesus said that. Those that are forgiven a little, they don't have the revelation, then they love a little. But those that have been forgiven much, they can love much. And that's uh, what should happen with each and every one of you. You should have that absolute revelation of the grace of God that reached down and lifted you out of that horrible pit and out of the miry clay, set your feet on a solid rock and put a new song in your mouth, even praise unto our God. And we should daily say, Lord, thank you. You daily load me with benefits. Thank you for your amazing, amazing grace. Again, this is one of the things Steve has mentioned it. Uh, I was uh, just on uh, Dr. Brown's uh, radio program on Monday of this week, and we were talking again about this uh, grace message that is so popular now. And the essence of that message is this, that uh, because everything is of grace, then any sort of works is contrary to grace. So the moment you are saved, you don't have to do another thing. We have one young man 
there in uh, Singapore, very popular these days, that uh, even says, and I've read it in his book, that uh, once you are born again of the Spirit of God, you never, ever have to repent again because your sins, past, present, and future, have all been atoned for. And therefore, if your sins, past, present, or future have all been atoned for, when you bring it up, you're, in, in essence, you're putting it back in the ledger book, and you're saying, God, you have not forgiven me. Now, it sounds logical, doesn't it? That when Jesus Christ died, that if I sin tomorrow, the blood of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago made atonement for my sin. But he says, you never have to repent again. Well, if you follow that logic, you should not have to repent the first time. Because that likewise is putting back in the ledger book something that is forgiven according to their logic. Isn't that right? The other problem with that is ultimately it's going to lead to universalism. That everybody is saved, they just don't know it yet. Carlton Pearson, that was a very popular uh, faith preacher there in Tulsa years ago, got into that. People tried to talk him out of it, but he believes that every single person is born again, they just don't know it. Because your sins were all forgiven. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Every single sin in the world has already been forgiven. And therefore, you just don't have to do anything about it. And any sort of works at all, you know, are a contradiction of grace. And that is not true. Yes, we are saved by the grace of God. No works necessary. I cannot atone for my own sin. I can't merit my sin. I don't have to, you know, crawl across broken glass or beat myself and, uh, and so on and so forth to try and get into God's good books and say, well, God, listen, I'm going to contribute as much as I can. You can make up the difference. No, that is not grace. Grace is totally and absolutely free. There's not a single thing you and I can do to merit it. But once we are saved, works do become a very much a part of our life. We will be judged according to our works. They don't pay any place in our conversion, but they do in our remuneration. The Bible says, you know, I've laid a foundation. That foundation is by grace, but you have to build on it and be careful how you build. And I was sharing with um, Dr. Brown the other day, and let me take you to this for a moment if you don't mind me uh, taking you here. Turn with me to uh, 1 Peter. Chapter 1 and verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, that you may obey. Verse 3, He's caused you to be born again to a living hope. In other words, we are brand new creatures in Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children. Do not be conformed to your former lusts. Now, obedience requires action, doesn't it? In other words, if I'm obedient, I have done something. I've responded to God's Word either negatively or positively. Negatively, of course, is disobedience. Positively, of course, is obedience. Verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself in all your behavior. Does that sound like something I have to do? Is obedience something I have to do? Verse 16, you shall be holy. Verse 17, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. Verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, and so on. Chapter 2 and verse 1, therefore putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy, envy and slander, now notice, putting it aside, as newborn babes long for the milk of the Word that you may grow. In other words, you have to long for it. You have to crave that milk. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent. I mean, all of this are requirements. Isn't that right? Every single one of these things is a requirement that God is asking me to do. Keep myself. Lay aside this. Don't do that. Don't do that. Again, uh, it says in verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross that we might die to sin, to live to righteousness, for by His wounds you have been healed. Again, that we are to live for righteousness. Chapter 3 and verse 11. Let Him turn away from evil. He that would seek to... Uh, 
live life and see good days. Verse 10, refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking guile, and let him turn away from evil. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Those are things that we are urged to do. And you can go all the way through this book. Now, here is the climax, and I was sharing this with Dr. Brown. He got excited about it. He says, I must have read that, but he says, I've never put it together like this. Down into chapter 5 and verse 12, through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. Now, listen, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In other words, he says, everything I have written is about grace. Everything I've written is about grace. He summarizes his letter. I've been writing to you about the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And yet, in there with grace is all the things that grace requires of us, our response to grace. As I am holy, be ye holy, and so on. Turn away from this, turn away from that. This is grace. Grace involves obedience. Grace involves these other things. It's not just simply God has done everything and you don't have to do another thing. Sit there like a bump on a log and, you know, and anything that you do, again, is uh, anti-grace, so to speak. Listen, underline that. It, it came, again, like a bolt out of the blue to me just recently as I was reading that, and I got to the end of the, the book there, and when I saw that, this is the true grace of God. I, I started going back, and I started underlining, and what I've read to you is just a few of those things. But he says, that's what I've written to you about. I've written to you about the true grace, meaning what? There is a false grace. If there is a true grace, there is a false grace. And there are those who distort the grace of God. Steve mentioned it this morning, the book of Jude, who turn the grace of God or twist the grace of God into licentiousness. Paul battled the same thing in the Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. They were saying, listen, if grace is there, if grace is there in abundance, then we can sin all we want to. Now, people tend to think of grace as a commodity that God has got a warehouse full of. In fact, he's got so much, he can't possibly give it all away. And so he's got this huge sort of discount sale, and grace is going cheap. Grace is a person, according to Hebrews. They insult what? The spirit of grace. You insult the spirit of grace. The spirit of grace is also the spirit of holiness. You cannot sort of divide God up and just take the grace aspect of God's nature and not balance it out with His justice and His righteousness and, and so on. It, it comes as a package deal. God is God. And you can't say, well, you know, the grace side sort of overrules all the other sides of God. No. There are responsibilities that we have. There is a judgment. Again, one of the doctrines that is very popular these days is all judgment was taken on the cross and there's therefore no judgment left whatsoever. Well, tell that to all the guys that died prematurely because they didn't take the communion correctly. For this cause, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have gone to a premature death. That was after the cross, even if we buy into their theology that, you know, all the red letters and before that don't apply, then even if we take the writings of Paul, there was judgment. Ananias and Sapphira was after the red letters. There was judgment. God is still a God of justice. He still punishes sin and so on and so forth. And we have to walk in obedience to the Word of God. Not only that, you've got the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who was having sex with his father's wife. Remember, not his mother, but his father's wife. And Paul puts him under discipline. And he refers to him as a brother. He said, I'm not called to go out into the world to judge. We have to do it for those that are in the church. And he says, put this brother aside, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his soul might be saved. Now, if his soul can't be lost, why go through the process? If his soul could not be lost, why go through the process? It was meaningless. Well, his soul can't be lost anyway. He's a brother. He's accepted Christ, therefore he can never lose it. No. 
Not only that, but Paul then writes in 2 Corinthians to that same church, and he says, thank God that what my letter accomplished, it brought you to repentance. And he mentions it twice. What avenging of yourself, what sorrow, what godly sorrow, what godly repentance. They had sort of prided themselves in what was going on, shame on them. Paul brings it to their attention. You should not allow this to go on in church. This is the house of God. We need discipline. And by the time he writes that second letter, again, they are repentant. And he commends them for their fear of God, for their repentance. And this brother comes along and says, there is no repentance. You see how twisted that is. Oh, he's a sharp guy. He's articulate. You know, he wins people over. But listen, he contradicts God's Word. And we've got to get back again to holding fast to God's Word as well as holding fast to the Word of God. All right? We need both. We've got to have that relationship, but we've got to get into the Word of God. We've got to study it. We've got to get to know it because God will never contradict His Word. Isaiah says, if they speak not according to this Word, there's no light in them, no revelation, no dawn. If somebody comes along and says, yeah, but God gave me a special revelation that this, this, and this. No, if it contradicts the Word of God, don't listen to it. Run a mile. I don't care, you know, how amazing it may be, how many signs, wonders, and so on are associated with it, uh, and so on. Remember in Matthew 24, I've possibly shared this before, but we're all the way through that chapter. Jesus warns us, and Steve mentioned it this morning, beware lest any man mislead you or deceive you. And you'll notice that all the deception is spiritual deception. After the wars, rumors of wars, and the natural catastrophes that take place, there is spiritual deception. He says, false Christ, false prophets, signs, wonders, miracles. And false Christ simply mean false anointings. False anointings. The word Christ means the anointed one. I remember reading that one day and I thought to myself, you know, nobody's going to stand up in a meeting like this and, uh, you know, convince me that they are Christ, you know. Well, I'm really Jesus. I've returned, you know. I know I don't look like I've, you know. And, uh, I mean, who's going to buy that? And I thought to myself, you know, not, at least I'm not going to fall for that until I realize that the word Christ means anointed one. False anointings will arise and deceive many. Now, that's a little harder, isn't it? Where somebody's raising the dead and blind eyes are opened and so on and so forth. And you think, wow, this has got to be but then they've got that hook in there, you know, you can live whatever way you want and so on and so forth and think, well, yeah, but God's obviously with this man, so, you know, I'll buy into that because I want to see the signs, wonders, and miracles. Revelation chapter 12, and I haven't bounced this off the Revelation expert, uh, <clears throat> but um, <laughs> Revelation 12, verse 15, and the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Now, notice that the serpent here, the devil, out of his mouth comes a river. Now, we talk about the river these days in charismatic circles, Pentecostal circles. There is a river of life flowing out from me, and the river is always associated with life, isn't it? Throughout the Word of God. Every temple in the Bible that uh, man made contained a laver. Every temple that God made contained a river. A river in, uh, in uh, the Garden of Eden that flowed out and brought life to the surrounding area. Ezekiel's uh, temple, there was a river that flowed, waters up to the ankles, up to the loins, and so on. You go to the book of Revelation, it says, and a, a river came out from the throne of the Lamb and from the Lamb. In other words, he is the source of life. A river is always the source of life. We talk about the you know, river songs and river conferences and river this, but notice this, where this river comes from, it comes out of the mouth of the dragon, and its intention is to sweep away the woman. And at least to me, it speaks of an almighty deception that is going to come, that is going to be masquerading again as a mighty river in order to sweep away the church. And God intervenes in that river. I mean, it has to be more than just a, a natural river, because rivers don't come out of somebody's mouth in that sense. 
and the church is worldwide. So it's got to be a spiritual type of a river that will come. In other words, the enemy knows what he's doing. He counteracts and counterfeits everything that God does. He has false apostles, the Bible says, false teachers, false signs, false wonders. You know, everything that God has, the enemy has a duplicate of. Just as God guards his house, he guards his house. And so we we need, again, to get into the Word of God. We need to know what God's Word says. We need to hold fast to the Word of God. As you study the lives of great men and women of God, as as, uh, many of you no doubt have, but all the way through the Bible, it was this relationship. Again, Steve mentioned it this morning. Somebody, you know, the psalmist says, As the, the deer, the heart panteth after the water brook, so longeth my soul after one. Thee, O Lord. Moses, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't take us any further. He didn't cling to the Ten Commandments and say, We've got it all, you know. No, thank God for the Ten Commandments. But he said, Lord, it's your presence that we want. And uh, time after time, you've got these individuals that, again, I've got this longing, this relationship with God that I may know Him, Paul says. Not just about Him. Paul knew what he, you know, doctrinally, he's still confusing a lot of people as to what he really meant. I mean, he was a brilliant, uh, brilliant mind. But he, he doesn't say, I know what I believe. He says, I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that what? He is able to keep me. And it's only as we cling to the Lord in these days and have that relationship with the, with the living God. Let me just uh, close with one little thing here. If I, in uh, Leviticus chapter 21 and verse 16, we have a list of uh, defects that disqualified any potential priest from being a priest. Now, first of all, they had to be Uh, one of Aaron's sons. In other words, if you were to be a priest in the Old Testament, a a high priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron. And uh, not only did you have to be a descendant of Aaron, but you had to be a physical, uh, you had to be physically perfect. If you had any physical blemish, you were disqualified. And you have a list of all those uh, disqualifications in verse 18. No one who has a defect or a blemish shall approach, uh, meaning approach the altar, a blind man, a lame man, one with a disfigured face or a deformed limb, a man with a broken foot or a broken hand, and all of those have got to, you know, spiritual significance to them if you look at them as a, in typology. But let me go back to the disfigured face. Uh, depending on what translation you have, uh, one says a flat nose, one translation says a broken nose, and the Aramaic says one whose nose is cut off. In other words, if you had a damaged nose, either a missing nose or a broken nose or whatever, you could not qualify to be a priest. Now, the Bible says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, the glory of kings to search it out. And we've got to search out, you know, was God against people that just weren't physically perfect? Obviously, He wasn't. But it was in typology, it was saying something because the priests represented the great priests of the ultimate priests, the Lord Jesus Christ, just as every sacrifice represented the Lord Jesus Christ. John said, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the nose is the member of your body that you discern with. Isn't that right? You know, you walk into the house, let's say the kitchen is at the back of the house, and you come in at the front door, and it's, uh, you know, six o'clock, and you've been... Uh, you know, driving and working all day and you're famished and you walk in the front door and your nose picks up that there is a burnt offering waiting you. (coughs) (laughs) (laughs) That your wife has been yakking on the phone and she's forgot, you know. Uh, Now, hopefully that doesn't happen, but on another occasion you walk in and you smell and you think, ah, my favorite whatever it is, you know. There's meat or there's something cooking on the grill and, you know, long before you see it, you smell it. And we have that expression, of course, that has worked its way into the English language, I smell a rat. It has nothing to do with smelling rats. It has everything to do with picking up something is not quite right here. You go to buy a car and the guy says, you know, these two models are identical. They've both got 25,000 miles on them, both the same price. And you sort of look, you know, down the side of one of them, there's a little bit of a wrinkle there or something. And you know, the other one looks perfect, and, or maybe you don't see that one first, and, you know, you say to him, you know, I smell a rat. This thing's been in an accident. You know, he's not telling me the truth. Or, or maybe the pedal's totally worn down to the, you know, the brass. You think 25,000 miles. Man, a pedal doesn't wear, wear down. The rubber doesn't come off that quickly. This thing has got to have 125,000 miles. You know, uh, you know I smell a rat. And, uh, and we've got to be discerning. 
I remember listening to Ern Baxter many, many years ago, and um, he talked about as a young man, he was up in Canada, it was the middle of winter, and uh, they had a power outing, and so the only way he could keep the house warm was to uh, keep the fire going at nighttime. And he woke up in the middle of the night one night, and he could smell something burning. And uh, before he put on the light or anything else, he said, my nose picked up something was wrong. He rushed into the living room, a log or something, and tumbled out of the hearth, and the place was on fire. He had time just to get his wife and his kids and uh, get out of the house, and the house was destroyed, if I remember the story. But he says, my nose saved me. My nose saved me. And this is a day in which we have to have a nose, if you like, spiritually. Let me take you to Isaiah chapter 11. In other words, if you smell something, then... uh, Don't ignore it. Isaiah 11, verse 1, Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. It literally says, and he will be quick to smell. That is the literal translation. He will be quick to smell. And uh, we need to be quick to smell what is uh, going on. We have the story in uh, Joshua chapter 9, and you remember how Joshua had uh, begun to go in and possess the land now, take the nation of Israel, and they were uh, beginning to drive out the various inhabitants. And over the next hill, so to speak, there was a little group of people called the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites knew that it was only a matter of time, maybe hours, maybe days, before uh, Joshua and his men would uh, discover them and wipe them out. And so they came up with this brilliant plan. They sent a couple of guys with uh, old clothes, old worn out uh, wineskins, crusty old bread, holes in their shoes, you know, five days of growth or whatever on their beards and, and so on. And they come into the camp as though they're being traipsing, you know, through the desert for weeks. And that's the story they tell Joshua. Oh, we've heard about your great fame. You know, they begin to flatter him. Watch out for flattery. You know, we've heard how great you are and blah, blah, blah. And by the way, you know, we come from a long, long, long way away. In fact, when we left home, this bread was fresh out of the oven. When we left home, these shoes were brand new. They weren't worn out, you know. We were cleanly shaved and so on and so forth. And we would like you to make a covenant with us. And of course, what does Joshua do? He goes by what his eyes see and his ears hear. And he makes a covenant only to discover that they lived, you know, just a matter of a couple of miles away. They were the next target that he would have uh, struck, if you like. And he is bound by that covenant as a result of it. But we need to be cautious in this day and age in which we live. Don't go simply by what your eyes see. But I saw the dead raised. You know, I saw a man's arms come right out of his socket. Now, you've got to be quick to smell. Quick to smell. And there is a spirit of discernment that I believe that we need. Out of all the gifts of the spirit, if you were to covet one in these days in which we live, it's that spirit of discernment. Lord, give me, make me quick to smell. Something is not quite right here. I don't know what it is. But Lord, I'm not going to believe that quickly. And go back to the Word of God and say, does it align itself with the Word of God? Does it give me a greater hunger for God? Does it give me a greater longing to walk in purity? You know, begin to weigh it up in light of what God's Word says. Because again, we are under attack. There is a mounting opposition. It is going to get worse. There's no question about that. We are just on the threshold of, uh, you know, a major avalanche. In fact, Steve Hill, some of you know Steve that was down in the Pensacola Revival, just wrote a book called A Spiritual Avalanche, and he deals with many of these things, and he is just uh, absolutely beside himself. Even though in the natural, he's just about dead, battling cancer for the last couple of years, but his spirit is so alive, and he is saying, listen, we have got to sound the alarm. We've got to sound the alarm. Beware lest any man deceive you. And the only thing that will keep us, again, is to hold fast to the Word of God, the Son of God, and hold fast to God's Word. Bless you. While we do hope that this message has encouraged you to put your faith in Jesus during these very difficult times, 
And before we close, as many of you know, we had to cancel our 20th annual conference because of state restrictions regarding COVID-19. But each of our speakers really believe that they have a word from the Lord for this season. And so we are going to hold a series of special meetings on our campus this weekend, April 24th and 25th. Unfortunately, these meetings are closed to the public, but we are offering all of you the opportunity to connect via a live stream. If you're interested, you can visit conference.purelifeministries.org for a schedule of all of the meeting times and information about how to connect. We are praying fervently that the Lord would come to each one of you in these very difficult days. That's all for today. Thanks for joining us. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.